Jubilee brings me down, and uh, Pastor Robert now as well. Pastor Steve, say anytime I can, I'll come by because I just believe in what you're doing. I believe in your pastor. He's a good friend. And um, I travel the world, and you, you start to, as you travel the world, you start to come back to your good friends. And um, now I can say yes to whoever I want to say yes to and know who I want to say no to. And uh, so I always say yes to my friends because you journey together. So I want to talk to you this morning, oh, this afternoon, sorry, about Jesus. I know it's like a surprise. But I want you to fall in love with him again. Sometimes Christianity can get so deep. And, and we get all into things, and we forget, to, we forget that the basics of Christianity is just to fall in love with Jesus every day. Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 2. He says, just as you receive Christ, so continue to walk in him. And so I don't know what your story of receiving Christ is. Uh, likely there'd be a lot of different stories, and they're all valid. And there's a lot of different stories in the Bible. One lady got saved by washing his feet with her hair. Another guy got saved by responding by giving half what he had to the poor, and one guy just asked to be remembered. <clears throat> but whatever the case may be is they all responded to Jesus. So they had some encounter with Jesus, and then they responded to him. And so Paul says, just as you receive Christ, so continue to walk in him. So whatever your story is, as different as it might be, everybody responded to Jesus. And so the, the, Paul's challenge is to keep responding. And so a lot of times we get caught up in all kinds of things that, that, that really, at the end of the day, aren't going to affect your life. I mean, the, the, the number one question I get asked about in the world is about hell and what's the truth about hell. We could talk about that later if you'd like. And this number two is about homosexuality. And so you, you, you've got that. And I'm thinking, <clears throat> how is it possible that that is the number two question being asked, the sexual behavior of 1% of the population, when we all have our own struggles that we need to sort out with Jesus? And so sometimes we get so caught up in debates and doctrines and things like that, that we lose sight of the fact that sometimes it's simply about falling in love with Jesus again for you. <clears throat> so you lose your first love. So I want to talk to you this morning about Jesus, because here's what I know. I know that all of you have made Jesus your Lord. I know that in some way you've all responded to Jesus and you've made Jesus your Lord. But my question to you this morning is, not is Jesus your Lord, is, is Jesus your rabbi? Is, is he, is he the, the person who is the guide for your entire life? And so with, with that as the backdrop, um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. <clears throat> if you'll give me a little bit of leeway, unless they're going to bring it up on the screen, because I'll be doing it from my memory, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, the, the context is, is Jesus is the new rabbi on the scene, and he is out choosing his disciples, all right? So Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 says something like this, that once again Jesus was out beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Now, if you're a note taker, if you like to take notes, you want to take the notes, on, on the, you, want, you want to underline the, the concept of for they were fishermen, because we're going to come back to that in a second. It says, for they were fishermen, and he said to them, follow me. There we go. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Ah, there we go. Next slide. Okay, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, follow me. And immediately they left the boat and followed them. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they were also in the boat with their father, casting a net. And he called to them, follow me. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. That's the first four disciples. James, John, Andrew, and Simon Peter. Now, 
in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus calls the fifth disciple. The fifth disciple was a guy named Levi. And it says something like this. It says, once again, Jesus was out walking by the sea. And he saw Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth. And he said, follow me. And immediately, Levi got up and followed him. Jesus ends up changing his name to Matthew. So you got, you got, you got the calling of the first five disciples. You got four fishermen and one tax collector. Four grown men. Now, there's a lot of things in Jesus' life that to me makes no sense, and this is one of them. What would persuade grown men to leave everything they know to follow a guy who just comes up and says, follow me? That makes no sense. And how does that discussion go at home? If you're here today and you're married, how does that go? Hey, um, sweetie, I just quit my job, okay, and I'm leaving home. To do what? To follow that guy. To where? Don't know. Just go follow him. For how long? Don't know. Just going to follow him. That makes no sense. What also makes no sense is why Jesus' first sermon was so well attended. Why was Jesus' first sermon? What was Jesus' first sermon called? The Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he had to climb a mountain to create enough space to talk to the people because they were so numerous. It was his first sermon right out of, right out of ministry school. First sermon ever, and yet he was that well attended. I've been preaching for years, and you're a good-looking group of people. I don't want to take any away from you, but I hardly have to climb a mountain to get away from you. That makes no sense. What, what would possess thousands of people to leave what they're doing to follow a guy to a hillside to hear what he has to say? Why? Then this guy goes around collecting disciples, and you've got grown men leaving everything they know to follow him, and all he's saying is, follow me. None of that makes any sense. I mean, you can talk about grown men leaving jobs, homes, communities, families. Some of them, some of them probably had children. You know that some of them were married. It would stand to reason that they would have children. Homes, jobs, communities, families, wives, and boats to follow a guy. I mean, it's one thing to leave your wife. It's a whole other thing to leave your boat. That's when you're serious. And there's women everywhere. You always get another wife. Get another boat. Serious. So Jesus says, hey, follow me. And you would think, these guys start following you, and you would think, well, maybe, maybe they were having a bad day or a bad year. Maybe they're having a midlife crisis. But then he goes four for four. Now, that's a little harder to do. Then he goes five for five. Then he ends up going 12 for 12. And before you know it, he is turning away people from following him. And you're going, how does this work? Now, to understand this, we have to understand that the Bible was written in Jewish culture to a Jewish audience. By Most of the Bible was written by people who were slaves and oppressed to some oppressor. So it's very difficult for free men and free women to read the Bible who's written from people writing from a slave's perspective and understand exactly what it's talking about. But to understand this, we have to understand that in Jewish culture, every Hebrew boy was trained to be a rabbi. Every single one. Every single Hebrew boy. It'd be kind of like this. How many boys in Hayward grow up wanting to play for the Raiders? But how many of them actually are going to play for the Raiders? And uh, most every guy in this room would have a back-in-the-day story. You know? Back in the day, I could dunk. 
until I tore my knee up, man. I tore my knee up. And so, and so we, all, we all athletically thought we were better than what we were. And that's the truth of it. Is that all of us, our mamas and daddies told us one day you can make it big. And the truth of it is, is that on our best day, we weren't going to make it big. I was a great baseball player. But on my best day, I wasn't Reggie Jackson. Barry Bonds. That's a whole different level. At some point, everybody is told you don't have what it takes to play at the next level. You're going to have to go earn a living somewhere else. And that was the same way with being a rabbi. Every Hebrew boy longed to be a rabbi, but along the way, they figured out they weren't good enough. And they were told, you're going to have to go make a living somewhere else. Every Hebrew boy was like that. Here's how they cut them. Here's how they figured it out. You had to memorize Leviticus by age six. That's number one. How many of us are disqualified? Hello? Right? You had to memorize Leviticus by age six. And here's the crazy part, is that everybody didn't have a Bible. So there was one Torah per community. So you had to memorize Leviticus based on your father's memorization of Leviticus and him quoting it to you. Now, how many of you had enough daddies that you just get, that's a whole nother level of something. If you memorize Leviticus by age six, you got to graduate to the first school. The first school was called the Bet Safar. Can I hear you say that with me? Because here's why. They tell me that you're going to forget 96% of everything I say today by Tuesday. And that's depressing because I've worked hard on this. So I want to teach it to you, okay? And they say I can get you to remember more if I get you to repeat something. So I want you to repeat this with some Go Raiders gusto, okay? All right? So, or Niners or whoever you cheer for, all right? Raiders. All right. I'm picking up Raiders. Okay, I'm picking up Raiders. All right. All right. All right. I'm picking it up. I'm picking it up. Raiders. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. All right, so I want everybody to say this, Bet Safar, go. Bet Safar. Now, the Bet Safar was elementary school. It lasted from 6 to 12. And in the Bet Safar, you had to memorize the entire Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The entire thing. In order to qualify to take the final exam of the Bet Safar, you had to prove you'd memorized it. Here's how they would do it. A Torah teacher would walk up to you and start a portion of the Torah, and wherever they stopped, you had to just pick it up. Unbelievable. No chapters, no verses, just straight memorization. If you qualified to take the exam, you got to take a Torah exam, which leads to this question. If to qualify to take the exam, you had to memorize the whole book, what could they possibly test you on? They would test you on your ability to ask questions about it. The greatness of rabbis was not found in their abilities to answer questions. The greatness of rabbis was found in their abilities to ask questions to keep a conversation about God going. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. It was his questions, not his answers. It was his questions. That was what the test was on. If you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you got to go to the next school. The next school was called the Bet Talmud. Can I hear you say that with me with some gusto? The Bet Talmud. Let's try that again together a little bit better, right? Go. Bet Talmud. The Bet Talmud is the school of the disciples. Bet Talmud. It lasted from 12 to 30, 18 years. 18 years long, 12 to 30, 12 to 30. It had five stages. Anybody ever wonder why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30? And then at 30 years old, he shows back up and people are going, Rabbi, 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 where was he? Where was he? 
Now, you might be thinking, well, the Bible clearly says he wasn't trained. No, the Bible does not say that. The Bible says there was a group of people coming against him who claimed he was not trained. But those same people also claimed he was full of Beelzebub. Those same people also claimed he was out of his mind. Just because the Bible says somebody said it doesn't mean what they said was true. They didn't just let any untrained idiot read the Torah in the synagogue. They didn't just let any untrained person open up the Torah and expound upon it in the temple. They didn't just let anybody do that. You had to have some credentials behind you. And so when Jesus was 12 years old, he wowed the teachers all those questions. He went to the Bet Talmud. The Bet Talmud was, lasted for 12 to 30. It had five stages. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call the stages stage one, two, three, four, five. Okay? And if you graduated from stage one, you got to go to stage Yes, you're with me. If you get to go to stage two, you get to go to stage three. You graduate stage three, you get to go to stage four. You graduate stage four, you get to go to stage five. Congratulations, you've just learned 30 years of rabbi training in six minutes. That was pretty good. At stage five, you graduate. Everybody graduates at stage five. At stage five, it's called Samika. Now, that's a really, really, really important word, and so we're going to learn that. At 30 years old, you enter stage five if you make it. At each stage, everybody was cut, see? It's sort of like the minor leagues going up to the major leagues. There's a lot of baseball players that can play single A, but they can't play double A. A lot of guys that play double A can't play triple A. Got a lot of guys that stuck at triple A and can never make it to the majors. At some point, you're cut, but stage five was major league rabbi. Stage five was the all-star game. Stage five was determining who had Samika and who didn't. At stage five, every rabbi graduated. Everybody's a rabbi. But then the only question left was, are you going to be a rabbi with Samika or are you going to be a rabbi without Samika? So I want to teach you that word. The word is Samika. Go. Samika. Let's try that again. Samika. Now, Samika is a word that means authority. So there was rabbis without authority and there was rabbis with authority. 99% of all rabbis were rabbis without authority. But the best of 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 the best were called rabbis with Samika. About once every three generations, actually. A rabbi came along so special that they would endue him with the title of a rabbi with Samika. Now, the difference between a rabbi with authority and a rabbi without authority, a rabbi without authority was a rabbi just the same, but he had to teach the Bible the same way his rabbi taught him. So, so a rabbi's way of teaching scripture was called his yoke. So however the rabbi taught you his yoke, you would then teach his yoke to the next, to the next, and it would pass down generations to generations to generations to generations. We still have that, we still have that in function today. Pastor Sonny's yoke, the way he believed ministry should be done, the people he tried to reach out to, he's passed that yoke down to the next generation of Victory Outreach pastors who are now passing that yoke down to another generation of Victory Outreach pastors. And hopefully 100 years from now, Victory Outreach will be stronger then than it is now. And it has to do with the power of how a yoke is handed down. That's how it worked. But if you were a rabbi with Samika, you were given the authority to start your own yoke. You could make up your own way of interpreting scripture. And so that's how, that's how this thing worked. Now, here's how they determined which rabbis had Samika and who didn't. At your graduation, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority in order to be ordained with this. Now, here's the issue, though. A rabbinical graduation was a baptism. 
So when you graduated from rabbi school, they would baptize you at 30. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. And he goes down into the water and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness number one, he baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi without Samika until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. Essentially, it was God saying, if no one else is going to speak for him, I will. And now Jesus is in Jerusalem and in Galilee, and he's not just a rabbi. He's a rabbi with... Samika, which means he can make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. <laughs> Think about your Bible. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with Samika. In other words, he wasn't yelling. It was, we've never heard this before, and since we've never heard this before, you must have authority. Then they would go, where'd you get your authority? And remember what he would always say? John the Baptist. Remember, you were at my baptism. <laughs> you were there. Remember, my dad spoke from heaven. Remember all that? It's awesome. It was awesome. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach. So now Jesus isn't just a rabbi. He's a rabbi with Samika. So why would thousands of people come to his first sermon? Because he had Samika, he was the new rabbi. And the rumor had it that this new rabbi, his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And so if, if rumor started going around that there was a new rabbi whose way of life was easier than what they've been taught, well, that rabbi's sermons would be hugely attended. People would have flocked from everywhere to hear what this new rabbi had to say. But the first thing a rabbi had to do was go get disciples. Where would you? Why? Because a rabbi who's not teaching someone his yoke is just a, a monk. He's thinking. He's meditating. He's, a rabbi had to be passing his yoke along. So think about it. If you are the new rabbi, where do you go to get disciples? You go to the Bet Talmud to get pre-qualified 12-year-olds, people who you knew had already memorized the word and they had already proven that they were smart enough to ask the right questions. You didn't have to vet them. You didn't have to pre-qualify them. They were pre-qualified for you. You just had to go back to the Bet Talmud and choose them. And here's what would happen. The new rabbis would go to the Bet Talmud and they would find little boys, 12-year-olds, pre-qualified, brilliant 12-year-olds. You didn't have to do much with them. You, you just could start teaching them your yoke. And the only question the new rabbi had to ask was, was, do I believe this little boy can do greater things than me? And if the new rabbi believed you could do greater things than him, he would choose you into his rabbi school with two words. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But most of them only ever heard, I'm sorry, you don't have what it takes to be in ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear, follow me. Fast forward, Jesus is 30 years old. He's the new rabbi with Samika. And he goes and finds some fishermen. Well, if they were fishermen, what does that mean? 
It meant they were disqualified. And so Jesus stands on the banks of a shore and he says, hey guys, follow me. And they had longed their whole life to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But they had only heard that they didn't have what it takes to make it. And now it's not just any rabbi. It's the new rabbi with Samika who is qualifying disqualified people. That's the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of Jesus Christ qualifies disqualified people. And aren't you glad? Anybody in here would have been disqualified by somebody? Good, you just fit the bill then. <laughs> Think about it. Jesus' first four disciples, what was their job? Fishermen. Fifth disciple, what was his job? He's a tax collector. Where did he find the tax collector? At the lake. Well, hang on. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who are you taxing? Fishermen. In other words, Jesus says, we're going to find out right now. Can you four have what it takes to follow me? Can y'all forgive the one guy who's been robbing from you all these years? And let's all go do life together. That's the yoke of our rabbi. See, the, once the rabbi chose his disciples, they wanted to do everything like him. They wanted to walk like him, talk like him, be like him. For us, what would Jesus do as a cliche or a piece of arm jewelry? For them, it was life. What would my rabbi do in this situation? How would my rabbi talk to the girl at KFC if she messes up my order? How, how would he speak to her? How would my rabbi speak to the guy who just cut me off on the 880? How? Because it's so busy. It's like the, whoever's in charge of the roads around here thought no one would ever come. It's like build another one, man. How would my rabbi, how, how would my rabbi speak to my husband? If he, if he leaves his underwear on the floor for the 18,000th time. How, how would my rabbi speak to my wife when she falls asleep too early? How, how, would, how would my rabbi speak to the lady that just cut in front of me at the grocery store and she's clearly got 20 items in a 15 item or only lane? How would my rabbi? It's not, what would Je, it's not just what would Jesus do. It's, 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 it was a way of life. It was not just a cliche. So, so he would teach them how to walk behind him. So they would, they would learn to walk like their rabbi. They wanted to mimic everything about him. And one of the ways he taught them to walk is he would tie a rope around their neck. So he'd tie a rope around the whole line and he'd hold the rope. And he'd teach them to walk behind him like this. And when they learned to walk behind the rabbi... When they learned to walk behind him with no help, he would remove the rope because the rope was no longer necessary because they were walking in one accord. They were walking in unity. And you could always tell. You could always tell in a rabbi school who was the best student of the day. How could you tell? How can you tell today who the best second grader is? They get to be the line leader. Same thing then. If you were the best student of the day, you could always tell because you were the one leading the line behind the rabbi. You could always tell. You could always tell when they got back to temple who it was because the rabbi had these special shoes. And so when, when, he, when the, the line leader was walking behind the rabbi, he would get covered in dirt from his waist down. He would get covered in the dust of his rabbi. The rabbi's dust would cover him from the waist down. But it wasn't dust you wanted to wash off. It was dust you wanted to show off because it was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It meant, hey, check me out. Check out my dust. 
It wasn't anything you wanted to wash off. It was telling everybody, hey, hey, I'm covered in dust. Check me out. Hey, that means I was the best student of the day. It means, hey, check this out, bro. It means that I was the best student of the day. I'm covered in the dust of my rabbi. I wanted to make sure you never forgot that. Social scientists tell me if I can paint images in your head that you'll never forget it. <laughs> so here's the thing. This is so important. You will either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you'll be covered in the dust of your own issues. You'll be covered in the dust of your dad, covered in the dust of your mom, my favorite one, covered in the dust of the way I was always brought up. You ever hear someone make that excuse for acting like an idiot? Like, Why are you acting like an idiot? Well, that's just how I was brought up. Like an idiot. Yeah, but you're 40 and it's ruining your life. Still. I was brought up like that. That makes it okay. Yeah, but you're screaming at your husband. He's going to one day leave you. You understand this. He's not going to put up with that forever. I know, but my mom yelled, so I have to yell because that's just how I was brought up. Yeah, but sir, you're ruining your family with your anger problem and your lust problem. It's actually ruining your family. You're fixing to lose everything important to you. Yeah, that's just how I was brought up. If you met my dad, you'd understand. See, you're not called to be covered in the dust of your father. You're not called to be covered in the dust of your mother or the way you were brought up or the neighborhood you lived in. You weren't called to be covered in the dust of any of that. You're called to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because if you're covered in the dust of your rabbi, you will cover other people in the dust of your rabbi. Whatever's dust you're covered in is the dust you're covering other people in. If you have any question as to which what, what dust am I covered in, look at the people behind you. Look at the people following you and ask yourself, what are they covered in? Because that's what you're covered in. See? And we're called to be disciples of Jesus. A disciple was not someone who said a magic prayer to go to heaven when they died. A disciple was someone who was determined to live like their rabbi. My question is, are you living like him? My question isn't, are you saved? You're in church at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. If you weren't saved, you're now saved. <laughs> During an Oakland Raiders game. That's saved right there. Now that's saved right there. That's saved. No one is questioning your salvation. No one. That's not my, that, my question isn't, will you go to heaven when you die? That's not my question. My question for today, and, that, and, and listen, I'm having some fun here. That's not a bad question to ask, okay? It's not. There's a place for that. Not today. Today, my question isn't, will you go to heaven when you die? My question is, are you covered in the dust of your rabbi today? Maybe, maybe a better question isn't, Will you go to heaven when you die? Maybe the question is, if you walked into heaven tomorrow, would you like it anyway? How many times did Jesus ever invite someone to go to heaven? Never. You can't find one. Now, Jesus gives the hope of heaven. It's very important. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. In my Father's house are many rooms. So there's the hope of, so if you're here today and you're 90, take heart. No, 
when you die, you'll go to heaven. But, the, but, but when Jesus talked about heaven, he didn't talk about it as a place you go. Jesus talked about heaven as a reality that was one day going to consume the earth. In, in, in my father's house, so many rooms, the, the, the root word is hotel room. In other words, it's not a place you live. It's a place you visit until you come back home. Right? So if you read to the end of the Bible, heaven comes back to earth. To earth. Nobody lives in heaven forever. Everything in heaven's coming right back here. The beginning of the Bible, God's making a new creation on the earth. The end of the Bible, God's making a new creation on the earth. Everything in the middle of the Bible is about God making a bunch of new creations on the earth to prepare the earth for the new creation coming to the earth. So in the beginning of the Bible, God's making a new creation on the earth. The end of the Bible, God's making a new creation on the earth. Everything in the middle of the Bible is God loving the earth enough to put on flesh and come to the earth to create a body of Christ who is creating the kingdom of God to prepare the earth for the kingdom of heaven to come to the earth. And, and somehow our message became how to go to heaven. No, the question is, if you walked into, here's what I challenge you to do. Go back and read everything Jesus ever said about heaven and ask yourself if you'd like it anyway. Jesus said in heaven, all the secret conversations in your heart will be revealed for all to see. (laughs) Welcome to heaven. Your motives are now on display. Hope you enjoy it. What if you're a racist? Jesus said that heaven is a table with every tribe, tongue, and race. So what if a racist accepts Jesus with eight seconds to live, and the person who leads him to Jesus with eight seconds to live says, hey, take heart, man. You're dying in eight seconds, but you're going to wake up in heaven instead of hell. The racist says, thank goodness. Thank you for coming to see me. Eight seconds later, the racist dies. The racist wakes up at a table with every tribe, tongue, and race. Is he in heaven or hell? To the racist, heaven is hell. See, Jesus never talked about heaven as a destination. Jesus talked about heaven as, here's what reality ultimately will be. Like it or love it, you better learn to love it because that this is what's going to happen. And so Jesus' invitation about heaven was not pray a magic prayer and go there when you die. Jesus' message on heaven was, here's what reality looks like. Go ahead and line your life up with that now. Why would you wait? Are you covered in the dust of your rabbi? Hey, there's this one time where Jesus was, um, had this encounter with a lady caught in the act of adultery. Remember? And, and, and the, the Torah says to stone her, remember? You guys know your Bible, right? Flip, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. You're in church. You know your Bible, right? I don't have to pre-qualify. The Torah says to stone her. So remember what they do? They take her to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the Torah says to stone her. What does your yoke say? In other words, how do you interpret it? And Jesus says, now, Jesus is in a conundrum, right? Does Jesus want to stone her? No. Does Jesus have to keep the Torah? Yeah. So Jesus says, you're right. The Torah says stoner, so I say stoner. There, I've kept the Torah. But I have Samika, so I can make up my own yoke. The Torah says stoner, so I say stoner. But I also say you have to be perfect to throw stones. Brilliant, Jesus. So everybody gets tired of holding their stones. They put them down. They walk away one at a time. Jesus draws in the dirt. What was he writing? I don't know. Na, 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 na. <laughs> they all walk away. And then Jesus looks at the lady and says, hey, where are your accusers? She says, they're not here. He says, great. Then neither do I condemn you.
Why? Because the Torah said you had to stone someone caught in the act of adultery. But the Torah also says you have to have two witnesses to condemn someone. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. Mm. Jesus, Jesus is brilliant. Which is why there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's not that you don't sin. It's just there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you by the law of God. The only one who can condemn you is the one not speaking. Actually, the only one who can condemn you is the one the Bible calls your advocate. He's speaking for you. That's the yoke of our rabbi. Now, there's a big difference between a declaration and a sermon. A declaration tells you what you already believe to be true, and you should say amen. It's meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. I'll give you an example. Jesus loves you. Amen. Jesus is bigger than anything you're facing. Amen. See, declarations, meant to be agreed with. But sermons aren't that. Great preaching has declarations and sermons. People need to be reminded what's true, but sometimes they need to be challenged. So in the spirit of a sermon, here's my question. The yoke of our rabbi looked at someone caught in the act of adultery and said, I don't condemn you. Could your yoke say that? You're the disciple of that rabbi, right? So how does your rabbi respond to someone caught in the act of adultery? He looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. And let me throw a wrench in some theology. She wasn't repenting. She was caught on her back. In the act. In the act. Could your yoke look at someone caught in the act of adultery and say, we love you, we do not condemn you, let us help? Because if it can't, then it's not the yoke of our rabbi. It's the yoke of your dad, it's the yoke of your mom, it's the, it's the yoke of maybe the church you grew up in. I wouldn't think that's the yoke of Victory Outreach. In my experience, Victory Outreaches are very compassionate towards sinners. They're very compassionate towards people who've messed up their life, and they're willing to give them 18 more chances. Thank God. You know, the yoke of the, the denomination I grew up in, the, the yoke of that denomination said if you catch someone in adultery, you can announce it from the platform at the church. That is not the yoke of our rabbi. That is the yoke of some jacked up white dude with severe daddy issues. It's not the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi was so awesome. There's this one time where Jesus met this lady who was divorced five times. And she was shacked up with the sixth one. Remember? He said, you've had five and the one you're with not. Remember? And she goes, I know. And he, remember what he says to her? Remember, remember what he says? What does he say? Quit sinning. Turn your life around. No. He says, can I get you a drink? You look like you could use a drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's the yoke of our rabbi there's this one time Jesus was having a very bad day and he ended up on a cross pretty bad day right have you ever used the excuse well I was just having a bad day to be a jerk to somebody <laughs> Jesus is just uh, am I preaching here today is this, this challenging enough Yeah. And Jesus was up on a cross, having the worst day ever. Didn't deserve it. The guy next to him cannot breathe. And so all he can get out is the breath to say, hey man, please remember me. Please, please remember me. And Jesus says, that's enough for me. You can go to heaven today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's awesome. 
It's awesome. Aren't you glad he wasn't on the cross going, well, Bo, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer and get saved like those folks in 2013 and they're not going to think you're saved. No, no. He says, hey, that's enough for me. Oh, and while we're at it, let's go ahead and forgive everybody at the foot of the cross too. Which leads to this question. What were the people at the foot of the cross doing? They were throwing dice for his clothes. Jesus forgives you because of the cross, not because of what you're doing at the foot of it. Mm. It's the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi forgives the guy on the left, forgives the people at the bottom. The yoke of our rabbi forgave a tax collector who was caught up in a tree. The yoke of our rabbi forgave a prostitute who had the wherewithal to wash his feet with her hair. The yoke of our rabbi let a lady caught in the act of adultery go. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I'm convinced that the very things that tick Jesus off we overlook and the very things that Jesus was kind to we get hard on. The, who's the only person Jesus ever said went to hell, ever? You don't know his name. He was a rich man who overlooked a poor man. Jesus is kind to everybody. Lady caught in the act of adultery? Stuff happens. Don't do that again. <laughs> Lady divorced five times, shacked up with the sixth one. Here's a drink. Guy on a cross, it's going to be okay. People throwing dice for his clothes, forgive them too. Prostitute washing his feet with her hair, okie dokie. A rich guy overlooks a poor man, that's the guy that wakes up in hell. That's the yoke of our rabbi. Who's the only person that Jesus said he was going to kill? So there was a guy that was so richly blessed, he didn't even know what to do with all his blessings. So he says to Jesus, I got so much food, I have no idea what to do with it. I could never eat it all. And Jesus says, well, there's a lot of poor people who need your help. How about share? And he says, no, no, no. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns so I can store up more so that my heart can know I'll never go without. Remember what Jesus says to him? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Tonight is your night to die. <laughs> Jesus kind to everybody, but a guy hoarding food instead of sharing with the poor doesn't make it. The, the rich man overlooking the poor man, Jesus says that's the guy that ends up in hell. See, Jesus said it this way, that eternal life is found in knowing God. The issue is the Bible defines knowing God as taking care of the poor and the afflicted. Jeremiah twenty two sixteen. when you take care of the poor and the afflicted, it will go well for you, for this is what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God. It's the only place in the whole Bible that's defined what it means to know God. And Jesus, it, in Sodom and Gomorrah, in Ezekiel 14 or 16, one around in there, it says, for the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. For the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. What do you think the sins of Sodom was? You would think sodomy, right? Like we named it after the place, right? Like if your name becomes a verb, that's a bad day, right? If you walk out of here today and go, man, he Shane Willarded me. I don't even know what that means, but that's bad. Man, flip. I just got Shane Willarded. I don't even know what that means. It's bad though. But you... It says, for the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. And sodomy wasn't on the list. It says, and her sins were pride, apathy, laziness, gluttony, and overlooking the poor. 
In other words, hoarding too much food and not sharing with people in need. And so all this talk about all these other things, my question isn't about that. My question is, is 16,900 children are going to die of starvation today. What does your refrigerator look like? Could you not feed one? Just one. And why not from just the people in this room? Why couldn't that number be 16,300? Victory Outreach has a missions thing. They call it United We Can. What have you done for that lately? You got, a, you got an organization sold out to help the marginalized of the whole world. 16,900 children are going to die today of starvation. And 16,900 more are feeling the final hunger pangs today to die tomorrow. What does your refrigerator look like? Are you, are you the rich man? If you drove a car here today, I don't care if it's the biggest piece of crap in the entire parking lot. If you drove a car here today, you're in the richest 8% of the whole world. If you and your wife left your spare car at home, you're in the richest 1% of the whole world. And if your home has a concrete foundation and lumber is the primary building material, in other words, you don't live in anything on wheels, you are in the top one-tenth of one percent of the whole world. We are the rich men. Is it the yoke of our rabbi? See, see, the church harps on certain things that Jesus was kind on, but they turn a blind eye to hoarding and greed, which is what Jesus was the hardest on. It's not the yoke of our rabbi. <laughs> hey, I want to close this out because I could talk to you about Jesus till tonight, but then you'd turn on me. <laughs> like a bunch of rabid dogs, you'd come at me, you know? So I'll close this out with one story from Jesus and then one personal story. Matthew chapter 9, don't, you don't have to turn there. You can just write it down if you want. You can check it later. It says something interesting. It says, so Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It's one sentence. So Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now that sounds like that you were going to walk from here to the subway right down the street. It, it, that, that doesn't it sound like that. Like it sounds like me going, hey, church is almost over. How about instead of driving our cars down there, let's for a cause, let's walk from here to the shopping center on this street, whichever direction I'm facing there. But it's not that. It takes an hour and 45 minutes to drive in a motor vehicle from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. I know because I did it a couple months ago. It is far. It would have been a several day journey. So Jesus is in Galilee in Tiberias and he goes, hey, let's go up to Caesarea Philippi. And because you're following the rabbi, you go, well, if that's what you feel like's best, let's do it, man. Several day walk. Let's do it. So they go to Caesarea Philippi. Here's the problem. Caesarea Philippi was the place no Christian would go. They weren't called Christians back then, but you know what I mean. They were, they, they were, it's the place that today, I'm sure there's a place in Oakland somewhere that Christians don't go. It's that. And the reason why was Caesarea Philippi today is called Paniah. 
The reason it's called Paniah is because Caesarea Philippi was the headquarters to the goat god Pan. Paniah. Pan. So in the middle of Caesarea Philippi, I've actually seen this. I've stood there. There was temples. There's, now it's the ruins of the temples. There's the temples to the goat god Pan. And I could show it to you on my iPad. I've got a picture of it. It says the courtyard of Paniah. I mean, so the courtyard of Paniah for Pan and the nymphs. Well, what's a nymph? What's a nympho? Okay. So Pan received worship through intimate acts with goats. Pan was a goat god. And so to appease Pan, you had to do intimate things with goats in this courtyard to keep him happy. Now, Pan's temple sat at the bottom of a mountain. You ought to see this thing. It is, I don't know, my guess is 110 feet straight up a rock wall. The temple's there, and right next to the temple is this big, giant crater-looking thing. It would be every bit as big as, as, as the, the arc part of that wall, but all the way up to the ceiling. It is huge. And what they told people was that that was the entrance and exit to hell. And that if you did not keep Pan appeased, he would open up the entrance to hell, and he would swallow you into it. And so people were being intimate with goats, not because they liked goats. People were being intimate with goats because they were being controlled with religious fear around hell. The followers of Pan were told, if you don't do what God tells you to do, he'll throw you in hell. And hell was used as a controlling factor to motivate behavior. In this case, being intimate with goats. Jesus takes his youth group there. On a missions trip. <laughs> now, when I was a youth pastor, if I'd have taken my youth group there, I'd have been fired. Because what would have been happening was, is people would have been intimate with goats 24 hours a day. Jesus takes 12 guys there. Can you imagine that? Everybody, oh my. Peter nudging John. Hey, John, I ain't never seen nothing like that in my life. Now, that is something else right there. That is... That is humdivity dog right there. I'm going to tell you now. I'm going to tell you that's just, that is something special. I've never seen anything like that in my entire life. Now, Caesarea Philippi was also in Alabama. <laughs> I'm going to tell you now that is something special. So Jesus has to focus them. Jesus goes, hey! Hey, Peter, hey, right here, man. Eyes front. Right here, bro. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, we can build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. In other words, I've actually stood in this place. It's unbelievable. Still a bit creepy, actually. Jesus was standing at the entrance to the gates of hell and said, bring it on. He went into Caesarea Philippi, and he didn't tell them to stop behaving that way. He, told, he attacked the very thing that was motivating the behavior. He knew nobody was doing that because it was normal. He was saying, you're being controlled by fear because of this? Uh-uh. He stands in front of the gates of hell and says, bring it. You're scared of that? That has no power. <laughs> he says, matter of fact, we'll replace the temple of Pan with a church. 
Oh, and by the way, if you know your history, in 330 A.D., it was. <laughs> it's all ruins today because of earthquakes and stuff. But in 330 A.D., um, Constantine's wife, Helena, replaced all those places with churches. <laughs> mm. The gates of hell will not prevail. I used to, um, I used to kickbox. I'll close this out today with this story. I used to kickbox competitively. I fought in the U.S. Open. I was invited to fight in the NASCAR World Championships. This was years ago. Please, no one challenge me to a fight today. <laughs> I'm 37. I'm too old to get hit. It just hurts too bad. And if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can look like this. Not exactly in fighting shape. But I used to fight well. That's back when fighting was different. It was more like karate kid fighting. Remember, you, if, if you hit someone, they stopped you and gave a point. And now, they just take you to the ground and pull your arm off. I'll pass. So I was just come back from the U.S. Open, and I'd won some things, and so all my friends were over at the house, and they were looking at the trophies and some of the pictures and stuff from the U.S. Open. And this guy in my neighborhood, his name was Kenneth Brown. And Kenneth was a freak of nature. He was one of, I am six foot two, 205 pounds. He was my size in the eighth grade. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's one of these guys that, you, you guys ever go to school with someone who was, like, shaving in the fourth grade? You know what I'm saying? Like, one of these freaks of nature, you know, it's like, they're shaving, like, like in, in seventh grade PE, you go into the showers and they have hair on their shoulders already? Like one of these guys, you know? And he shows up at my house and he says, Shane Willard, I think I can whoop you. I said, I think you're right. He said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. I said, no, I'm serious. I'm not fighting. He said, why wouldn't you fight? I said, because you don't fight people twice your size. Pretty good rule, right? He said, um, he said I went and bought boxing gloves to, uh, to prove I could whoop you. I said, boxing gloves? You mean a boxing match? Oh, no, we can box. Because a boxing match is different than a fight. Boxing match, you're standing up fight, he can grab me, take me to the ground, and then that's not really a good thing. But standing up at arm's length, and if we clinch, somebody's there to separate us, oh, yeah, let's do it. And so you can picture all this, all the friends were there, making a ring, fight, 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 fight. One friend strapped my gloves on, another friend strapped his gloves on, and I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown, and I beat him to death. I beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him. I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. <laughs> but I couldn't hurt him. He's twice my size. So Kenneth gets frustrated, and he decides, I'm going to throw a punch that's going to end this. And he threw a punch. I'm talking to the biggest right cross I've ever seen in my life. It came from way back here. Let me show you how fast it came in real speed. This is how fast it actually came. Ready? I actually had time to think. I'll move now. 
He left himself in this position. And I decided I'll end this. Y'all, it was the greatest punch I've ever thrown. I've never hit someone before nor since harder than this. All my weight was on my back leg. Everything was moving, big muscles leading small muscles. If you play golf and you've ever hit a perfect shot, you can hit one per 18 holes and it gets you coming back. It just feels unbelievable. Everything was moving in tandem, big muscles leading small muscles, everything right to the base of his chin. Bam! His head snapped back. His knees buckled. In retrospect, I should have kept hitting him. <laughs> but at that moment, I, I'd never hit anybody that hard. I didn't think there was any chance. I just waited for him to fall. But he caught his balance. And he looked up at me. And now he was mad. <laughs> he looked up at me, his face turned red, and he said, Boy, is that all you got? And it was. <laughs> I had hit him with everything I had, and he was still coming. How many of you know, I think I'm in a room with some people who might have fought a little. How many of you know when you hit someone with your best shot and they're still coming, you lose? Like you hit them with everything you got and you know you hit them with everything they got, with everything you got, and they go. You lose. I lost that fight that day because I forfeited right then. I said, I admit he's the winner. Let's get the gloves off. We're all friends. Okay? Listen to me. This is so important. The yoke of our rabbi in the book of Colossians, it says the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display. It was put on public display. Why? You can't do more to someone than kill him. Oh, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Bless those who come against you. How about if they slap you? What if they put a crown of thorns on your head? What if they hit you with a whip 39 times? What about that? What if we do this, huh? What if we spit on you? Love your enemies? That's what your yoke says? Come on, man. Come on, rabbi. Break your yoke. Come on. Can you keep your yoke under the hardest conditions? Come on, man. Let's put this on public display. And they beat him, and they spit, and they hollered, and they mocked, and they beat him, and they stripped him, and they killed They did everything they could do until they killed him and at no point did he ever quit loving people they gave the yoke of our rabbi their best shot and he still stuck with it and Jesus descended into hell and he looked at Satan right in the eye and he said boy is that all you got you thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me uh uh, uh -uh. here's what I'm going to do Three days from now, I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach for the very people who abandoned me in my time of need, and I'm going to love them anyway. And while I'm here, the Bible says that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the dead. While I'm here, anybody want out of here? Come on with me. And the Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied. Was that his altar call? <laughs> you thought you could defeat my yoke? Uh-uh. The yoke of our rabbi is that love saves the day. No matter what they've done, love saves the day. 
But they abandon you in your time of need. I know. They did him too. Love saves the day. Who do you need to cook breakfast on the beach for? Is there anyone who used to come to church here who's scared to come back because you might bring their failures up? Maybe a phone call needs to be made that says, hey, come on back. Everybody gets a fresh start at Victory Outreach. Come on back here. We follow the yoke of our rabbi. See, my question isn't, are you saved? I know you are. My question is, isn't, is Jesus your Lord? My question is, is Jesus your rabbi? If you couldn't tell people you were a follower of Jesus, would people know it just by how you live? Are you behaving like him? Are you covered in his dust? Let's pray together. Lord, you're wonderful. We love you. We honor you. I want to give you a second to repent. (laughs) My repentance on this message sounds like this, if you need something. Lord Jesus, please forgive me for any place I've created my own yoke. You have not been given special samika. You have to follow the yoke of your rabbi. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you teach his yoke. You live his yoke. So I want you to be brave enough to ask this question. Holy Spirit, give me the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. I want you to ask that question right now. Holy Spirit, give me the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. (laughs) I want you to be brave enough to ask this question. Lord Jesus, where have I varied from your yoke? Where have I created my own? Where have I taken authority that I shouldn't? Holy Spirit, speak to my heart now about someone that needs a phone call from me. A word of encouragement, a forgiveness, a breakfast on the beach. Forgive us, Lord. Right now, just right where you're seated, why don't you tell Jesus, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. Teach me to live like you. Even if I'm not comfortable, teach me to live like you. In Jesus' name. Do it this way. Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your day in Hayward. I'd like to invite you back tomorrow night. I'll do some deeper teaching tomorrow night. Something that'll change your life forever. You won't want to miss it. I, I think the Niners are playing a Monday night football. Tape it. Devo, TiVo, DVR. If you don't have a DVR, it's 2013. Go get a DVR. It's a lot better to watch about commercials anyway. Um, I bless you guys to know that you serve a God who believes in you more than you believe in him. He believes you can do greater things than him. He's entrusted you with his yoke for this entire community. I bless you with that. I bless you to be people who live it, to let a, this place be a dwelling place for your name. I bless you to be people who aren't just saved to go to heaven, but you're saved to bring heaven here. I bless you to be people who live it. I hope you're really blessed by that today. I hope that opened up the scriptures to you. But more than anything, more than anything at all, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. God bless.